This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Good morning, I'm Carl Pellimer, and I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and we welcome you to another episode in our podcast series, Doing Translational Research. Uh, and my guest today is Dr. Megan Comfort, who is a senior research sociologist in the Research Triangle Institute's Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice Research Division. Her areas of expertise include incarceration in families, HIV prevention, and health inequities among urban poor populations. And she is the author of the book, Doing Time Together, Love and Family in the Shadow of the Prison. Uh, and we are excited to have her here. She also will be speaking with our group later on today, and we'll ask her a bit about what she's going to talk about there. Uh, so welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'd like to begin... Uh, just to ask, and I know this is always difficult for us academics, but to give our listeners a sense of your main research interest or interests, um, another way to think about this is uh, what are some of the biggest uh, questions your program of research tries to answer? Mm. Kind of, What are you interested in in general? Right. I would summarize it as saying that I am interested in how involvement with the criminal justice system affects the health, well-being, and relationships of people. And involvement with the criminal justice system can be one's own sort of arrest, incarceration, traveling through the courts, um, but also that of one's family members. So that would be the succinct <laughs> way of summarizing that. That's great. And what are some ways you've pursued that? Like, uh, what kinds of studies have you done? Or... Right. I've been very fortunate to work my entire career um, in a very interdisciplinary environment. I was first at the University of uh, California, San Francisco, at the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies. So a strong uh, public health focus, but working with psychologists, anthropologists, epidemiologists. I'm trained in sociology. Uh, and so, therefore, coming from that, um, we have focused a lot on the health issues. So I did start out in HIV prevention and um, treatment for people who are HIV positive, looking at how correctional facilities in particular um, increase risk, make treatment possible or difficult. Um, again, for people on the outside, their relationships to incarcerated people and what that meant for their health. Uh, and I've continued that interest now that I'm at RTI International, um, still, as I say, working in a very interdisciplinary environment. So we tend to kind of be looking at multiple issues at once, um, but as I say, I'm really focusing on well-being and health at the core. Uh, you know, I always digress in these interviews, and now <laughs> I've gotten fine. interested in something. Is the issue of incarceration in families, I mean, it's my sense that Despite some research activity, it's an underemphasized, understudied mm -hmm. area still. Is that correct? It would seem to me that there's a lot that we need to know about that that we don't, and that it's an issue that doesn't really come into public eye as much as it should. I do agree with that, yeah. There has been a huge burgeoning of research in the last um, really just few years, maybe five to ten years, which has been extremely gratifying for someone like me who's been working in this since the mid-90s. It was really exciting to see more and more people getting involved in this aspect of the field. But I do agree with you that it's, it, you know, compared to looking at people who are themselves incarcerated, looking at the criminal justice system through the lens of criminology, families uh, were involved very late in the game. Um, and I think that, as you're saying, it also reflects in kind of the mainstream conception. When we think about criminal justice, we're always thinking of quote, criminals and not um, 
people who get involved in various capacities, including family members. You know, um, an ongoing interest of the Bronfenbrenner Center here has been, in general, the relationship between families and community institutions, so families and uh, institutions that care for older people, schools, children. Are there some elements in common with those sorts of things, or is incarceration such a dramatically different um, a situation that our family issues really either either more extreme because of the stress it causes or right I think kind of a hybrid of that I mean what you're saying about can we learn from other places I think is really key and again because the lens of criminal justice hasn't involved families and more outside and community issues for a long time I think we've uh, not looked to places we could in terms of both understanding when incarceration means to families you know other families are separated for different reasons other families lose contact with someone for different reasons um, and how like systems are set up to help people in those situations so there have been some great programs that have been developed to help people with those issues That said, I also think that there's something very unique that happens in the context of incarceration, and so there is a need to understand specifically what's going on and how maybe a different program should be tailored or how those uh, lessons that have been learned in other contexts could be specifically applied to the incarceration context. Um, One of the things, I I, I think there are just issues that come up differently, but it's been really interesting to me as I've been able to work kind of spanning almost 20 years now in this field, is getting to see different areas of the country and talking to families who have been separated by incarceration in places outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I've done most of my own research. And the commonalities across those places, so people living in like rural Indiana are saying things that are very similar to people who are living in urban Oakland, California, Mm. around what incarceration has meant for their families. Families. And, I, and that's one of those things that makes me think, okay, there's something very specific to incarceration that we need to make sure we're understanding because it seems to play out in a lot of different places. Oh, that is really interesting. And continuing the line of asking you to sum up a career's worth of work in a single question, do we know much about evidence-based interventions that help to mitigate or moderate the stress that families experience? Is there much of an evidence base to tell us what you know helps families and what uh, what kind of programs tend not to work? I would say that's still a very fledging, fledgling field. There's been, again, kind of in the last 10 years, more of an investment in that from the government level to uh, programming, you know, community-based organizations level. I We have kind of some programs evaluated here and there. I think the jury's still out on kind of the best way to approach this. And there's a lot that happens with incarceration in general that you know we refer to as kind of the unintended consequences. Um, And I think that the programs themselves have a lot of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So one thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, children visiting an incarcerated parent. Like there's a lot that says that we should do that, that children need ties with their parents. But children going into a correctional facility produces a lot of unintended consequences. And so it's things in that vein that when we're looking at programs and we're really trying out the evidence, I think we need to be very, very careful that we're not inadvertently inflicting more harm on people who are already experiencing harms uh, and that we kind of get it right in terms of what people need. That's great. Yeah, no, and I'm sure that's a, that does sound like a new area. You know, uh, you are going to talk today, uh, and, and uh, the title of your talk is Beyond the Peer Review Article, um, looking at how to make uh, research relevant, and that's of huge interest to our center. Uh, what you, could, could you share a few of your thoughts on that? I, we're, you know, I think we're 
also in the midst of struggling with what some of us perceive as a lack of receptivity to scientific and research-based information. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have have done some thinking of what works to get information out, and Mm -hmm. could you share some thoughts on that? Sure. Um, I have been, as I say, very fortunate both to work in this interdisciplinary environment, but also in environments that have always pushed for the importance of translating research, which is not always the case in academic settings. Uh, So I feel like I have put a lot of thought into that, but by the good fortune of being places where my um, fellow colleagues are demanding that I do that. And I've been able to learn a lot from their examples um, of different ways that we can try to be doing that. And uh, and again, with underscoring always that it's very important. So at UCSF, there was a very large focus placed on making sure that people who participated in our research understood research, not just a consent form to get in, but like what actually happens after I begin participating in this person's study. And so we used to have community forums where we would go back to the communities where we recruited people and like broke down results for them in a PowerPoint presentation and gave them a handout, a fact sheet of like, here's what we learned, here's why your answers were important. So I think there are things all the way from that to, you know, trying to get pieces out in op-eds, trying to make the general public more aware of what are some of these key issues, who's being affected by things. Again, the unintended consequences, I think, is a really important piece for the mainstream audience to understand. Um, So being really intentional about how we communicate our research findings and making sure that people are getting those key core messages, uh, which are often very difficult to pull out of a peer-reviewed article. (laughs) Um, There's an example I'll be giving in the talk today where a a community-based organization group that's organized around women who have incarcerated loved ones used a piece of the data that was, um, I mean, it was a result of the data that Chris Wildeman, who's here, and his co-authors, Hetty Lee, and, and some others, had in an article, uh, but what was I thought so fascinating about it was that the piece of data that the group was using like wasn't in the abstract, wasn't actually a big piece of the article. So it's kind of that sifting through what we've done to see what's important for other audiences and making sure that they get the result that's important for them to know about and to move their work forward. So it sounds like you, it's uh, there's a plan to integrate some of this kind of a community-based feedback, which really that makes sense to me in building up a constituency for research. Right, right. I think it is, it's very important. It's a social justice issue for me as well. Mm. You know, it is kind of trying to collapse that hierarchy of the outside researchers who come in and take data and take information and leave and don't return to the community with it. And the more community people understand why it's important to participate in research, the more willing they'll be to participate. And also then, you know, people who are on a career track in those communities can be thinking about research as somewhere for them to go, which is important as well. No, I think it's great. It builds those partnerships in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let me ask, uh, you know, as you think about this whole general area in which you do research, um, are there some things that you would particularly like of the general public uh, to understand? So if there's one or two things that you could get across in a successful way to the general public. Are there some things that you've learned about this issue that you would really like to convey? There are, yes. I would say, one, this idea that when we think about you know, somebody who goes to jail or somebody who goes to prison, we're just thinking about that individual person and you know, debunking that and really thinking about people who are connected to social and family networks. Um, Back when we didn't use incarceration very much, you were more likely to have very disconnected individuals who would end up in a correctional facility. Now that we're using incarceration very widely, most people who are going into one of those facilities has some sort of social or family network who's going to be uh, affected by what's happening to them. So really thinking about what that means in terms of the cost of incarceration, again, the unintended consequences, like what 
does using the criminal justice system as a major system in our society mean on this broader level? So that would be one piece. Tied to that is in this broader use of incarceration, um, I think there's always the stereotype of people who are held in a jail or prison facility that they, you know, have one, done something very serious, two, done something very harmful, three, can kind of never change their lives around. Um, and that, you know, is really being shown to just not be the case at all. People are being pulled into criminal justice involvement for things that lots and lots and lots of people do, and only some people get pulled into the system. Um, and also getting back to kind of programming and rehabilitation. I mean, when people are provided with other opportunities, the large majority of them are able to make use of those opportunities and do something else. So I would say those are two key messages that I would love for everyone in our society to understand. Oh, well, that's great. And let me, you know, you, you made me think of one more thing. As you look back over 20 years of working on this, and so this could either be an optimistic or a pessimistic viewpoint, but, you know, have you found that the research you and colleagues working in this area have done uh, has made its way into policy or practice? Are there research findings that people have used, have been influenced by in, in states or in, in, in individual correctional facilities or, or nationally? Is there some permeation of the knowledge that you can point to? I would say I don't want to speak too broadly because I'm sure there are things going on that I don't know about, but I think it is a very exciting time for exactly what you're speaking about. And I would be comfortable saying that I think we're right on the cusp of that, that there's some of that going on in some places, but I feel like we have moved as a society, as politicians, as bipartisan collaborations to the point where people are very open and receptive to the idea that we can be doing things differently and that the research is a good guide on that. Uh, I am aware of you know various counties doing very innovative things with their jail populations right now. Um, states are often a little harder to move since it's the entire state that would change the prison system. But there are um, people who are looking out to the research, looking for evidence-based practices around things like family visiting, around things like programming for incarcerated people, around re-entry programs. And I, I feel like I would say in the next five to ten years, we're going to see a real shift in that way. That is a very optimistic answer. but it's well, and, it's, and it's great for us to be able to end on a positive note. Uh, we really appreciate your joining us. Hope you might join us again someday. And we invite our listeners to tune in for our next episode in doing translational research. And thanks again um, to Megan Comfort for joining us. Thank you so much. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.